Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. It says, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and he saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrans. So he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury for they all put in out of their abundance, but she put in out of her poverty all that she had her whole livelihood. You may not know the name Vladzo Valentino. It may not sound all that familiar to you. He died several years ago. He was born at the very beginning of the last century, and he had a most amazing life. His mother was Polish and his father was Italian, and the father abandoned the family early on. He grew up to become one of the most flamboyant and wealthy entertainers of the 20th century. Tragically, he died of pneumonia complicated by the AIDS virus. You probably know him better by his stage name, Liberace. The people who sold his estate rented the Los Angeles Convention Center and they charged six dollars admission on display were twenty five thousand to thirty thousand objects d'art collectibles. The accumulation of a lifetime of gross materialism. His net worth was estimated to be between one hundred and fifteen and one hundred and twenty five million dollars. There was a hole deep inside of him that was never quite filled. The auction, this was followed by an auction at Christie's for his more expensive items. Christie's charged $10 a head just so they could limit the crowd. More than 55 million Americans play the lottery at least once a month. You know what's interesting about that statistic? It's about the same amount of adults who go to church on any given month in America. Do you realize that Americans spend approximately eighty eight million dollars every day on the lottery? More than they spend on groceries, gambling expenditures as a whole, whether you're talking about lotteries or casinos or sports betting now tops five hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. That is more money than Americans spend a year on films and books and amusements and the music entertainment combined. It represents roughly a three thousand percent increase over the last 30 years. In 2005, Americans gave $260 billion to every church everywhere combined. Does it surprise you that most Americans will spend at least twice as much on gambling as they do on charitable giving? It wasn't me. It was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is. There where your where your heart be also. It should prompt a question. Where does your treasure lie? 
Is it in the fleeting, floating, futile riches of this world or is it in the faithfulness of God? Last week, we looked at the pride of living and this week we look at the pride of giving. Remember where we're at in the life of Jesus. Jesus has come to the temple. It is Tuesday. By the time Thursday night rolls around, he will be arrested and he will be incarcerated and eventually he will be crucified and then he will rise from the dead. Remember, this is his final appearance in the temple, and he's going to use this time in the temple to take a parting look into the heart of a little old widow woman. You know, there are very few things that have survived from the ancient Jewish temple. The 10th and 12th legions of Rome came in in 70 A.D. and burnt the temple to the ground. We have stories of its collapse and burning and the treasure taken away by the Roman armies. But there is one treasure that has managed to survive. The Israeli Antiquities Authority have discovered small hordes of coin caches sprinkled around the Temple Mount that span 2,000 years, including... Pruta. These are the smallest coins that were in circulation from about 100 B.C., even up until the time of Jesus. These coins are called widow's mites after this particular story in the Bible. You see, a woman's gift is observed by Jesus. It was recorded by the Bible writers and it has borne fruit over hundreds of generations Because in her example, Jesus will explain once and for all the most important thing about giving. He shatters the illusion that giving can be measured by the size of the gift, but rather by the amount that's kept. You see, the Bible says that giving is personal, volitional. That means according to your own will, sacrificial. We learn from this text that giving is measured not by what is giving, but what is kept. Look again in verse 41. The servant observes people giving. It says, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and how many were rich put in much. Jesus and his disciples are In the court called the court of the women. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Jewish temple and the temple mount, let me take you back in time and space. Imagine we could go back to this time when Jesus is in the temple and there is a court that you would enter. It was called the court of the Gentiles. When you go past the court of the Gentiles, you would enter into the court of the women. And there in the court of the women was a a place called the treasury. In the treasury, there was a group of offerings, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Jesus has already delivered his scathing rebuke to the religious leaders, to the scribes and Pharisees, that very famous famous and familiar passage of Scripture where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! And now Jesus is going to take time out to watch People putting money in the offering plate, but they're not really offering plates. There are 13 collection boxes that's in the shape of a trumpet or in the Hebrew shofar. 
Um, imagine some of you know the shape of a shofar. It's a ram's horn. At one end is where you would blow the ram's horn. And at the other end, it was a little larger receptacle. And they made 13 offering boxes in the shape of these shofar. And so hence they were called the trumpets and the trumpets were marked with what's called designated giving in one. You would see it would say for the wood on the temple. Another one would say for the sacrificial implements. There was even one that was marked free will offerings. And as you can imagine, the people would come and the rich would come and they would have shekels. Usually these were silver coins um, or full shekels and they would come and they would maybe have a bag of money. And when they would pour it into the shofar or the trumpet, it would make the sound almost like a slot machine at Las Vegas. You would hear it coming down because they were made out of silver and it would just make this incredible sound. And the word when it says now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. The word saw is very interesting. It's translated beheld. It's the Greek word ei theoriai. You know that word. There's a word that has descended into our language. We have the word theory. When you have a theory, it means a calculated conclusion that you come based on observation. It would appear that Jesus is looking and as he's looking at each person, he's peering not into the activity that they're participating in, but he's looking inside of their heart. Because Jesus can do what no one else can do. He can discern not only the method, but the motive in giving. And we're left with the impression that Jesus is taking a quiet moment, a respite. Remember, chapter 12 has been a series of grueling questions about the resurrection, about tithing, about this and about that. And he sits down and he is taking a moment and he's looking at the people giving. And I suspect that as Jesus saw the people approaching the trumpets or the offering boxes and he's witnessing them depositing these large sums of money, that there's several observations and even conclusions that we can draw, even from this tiny bit of information that's given to us in the text. We understand from the text that Jesus has the supernatural ability to discern motive and method and the human heart. Look what it says. And many who were rich put in much. And so we have to believe that he's alive and that he can still see method and motive and manner. And by the way, when it says in many who were rich put in much, the text doesn't applaud and it doesn't condemn the rich who gave much. As a matter of fact, to an observant Jew, they would have been familiar with the writings of the book of Proverbs in chapter three, verse nine, where it says, honor the Lord with your wealth and all the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim with new wine. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse verse 10, it says, Give generously to the needy and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you and all your work and everything you put your hand to. 
Jesus already in his ministry has spoken on the subject of giving in Matthew chapter six, verse four. Remember, he says you you shouldn't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing, that it should be personal and secret. Jesus makes it clear that we should give absent some great big show. And this is one of the reasons why I've been reluctant to post plaques around the church. Like the Open Door Cafe is brought to you by John and Jane Smith. Or the Student Ministries is brought to you by Don and Dora Jones. Because the Bible doesn't seem to indicate that that's what we do. Because public giving sometimes lends itself to a show. And many people who have come here have gone here for weeks or even months. Because this is the very first time I've even spoken on the subject in years. And they say, how do I give at this church? And I go, there's little, these little wooden boxes around. Sometimes even erroneously, people will stand in this pulpit. They'll give announcements and they'll say, well, we don't take an offering. No, no, we really do take an offering. We just take an offering in an unconventional way. Those little wooden boxes, they're around here so that you can give personally, volitionally, and privately. Public giving sometimes will lend to a show and so... Rather than do that, we try to figure out another way to do it. I'm reminded of a man who once stood up and he pulled out his wallet and he gave his name and he gave his address and he gave his phone number and he he gave his business. He says, I want to give this gift anonymously. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I love the story of Guido and Mario. They were two brothers who were notorious gangsters and Mario died and his brother Guido came to the pastor to conduct a funeral service. And he said, look, I will give your church a hundred thousand dollars to the building fund. If at the funeral, the pastor will just simply tell those people who are in attendance that Mario was a saint. And the pastor paused and he thought about it. Because he knew that Mario was a thief and a crime lord, that he was in charge of all of the drugs and prostitution in town. He knew that he was an adulterer, possibly a murderer. But he was thinking, man, the church could really use the money. And after some thought, the the pastor agreed. And at the funeral, the pastor got up and he said, Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We've come here to bury Mario. Many of you know him as the head of the local crime family, a drug lord in charge of prostitution and crime. But compared to his brother Guido, he was a saint. (laughs) A word fitly spoken. Sometimes the rich make contributions in the hope that their generosity will bring some measure of equilibrium or forgiveness or ease of conscience or civic or social duty or religious duty. But you would be making a very serious mistake if you thought people who were rich gave for impure motives and that somehow the rest of us are immune from that. What is your attitude about money? What do you really think about it? You see, our views are sometimes shaped by our culture or our society. It's shaped by our parents. It's shaped by our circumstances. Some of you grew up in very difficult circumstances, maybe even abject poverty. 
My father left my mother when I was only three years old. and We came to California after a time of profound difficulty. My mother met and married one man and then another man. By the time she was 23 years old, she'd already had five children. And all of these men had left and she had five children and we lived in a two-bedroom apartment. Things were very hard. She would work late at night in order to have enough tips just to put food on the table. Do you see money as a corrupting influence or a tool for good or evil or or even a blessing? Do you see money as something to avoid or do you see it as something to manage or something to pursue for godly gain? Do you think that money should be given away or invested or spent wisely or accumulated? Do you think that your possession should be minimal or adequate or plentiful? Do you see spending on yourself as something just for basic needs or moderation or pleasure or enjoyment? Do you equate holiness with poverty? Do you believe that the presence or the absence of wealth is a sign of God's favor Or a sign of his displeasure. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. Paul wrote. So whatever you eat. Or whatever you drink. Or whatever you do. Do it to the glory of God. And for some people it never occurs to them. That they can use money for the glory of God. You see in order for you to truly believe. That money can be used for God's glory. You have to believe that God is the true owner. Of money or wealth. The Lord God is the creator and the sustainer and the owner of all things, including money and property and investments. In Psalm 24, verse 1, we read, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so when he's talking about money here in the text, he's meaning coins, perhaps gold coins, more likely the silver shekel or the half shekel. But all of the people would have had copper coins. Observant Jews from foreign countries would have taken their gold, their silver, and they would have exchanged it for the half shekel or the shekel or the pruta, which was the Jewish coin that had been minted some 100 years before the birth of Christ. They would drop in large pouches. They would fill it with coins and you would hear them funnel down the box shouting and clanging like some gigantic machine speaking of a person's wealth. And all of these things attracted Jesus's attention, but only one woman attracted his admiration. Look again in verse 30, 42. The servant observes the widow. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrans. In verse 40, earlier in the chapter, when Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders, he condemned the greedy, unscrupulous practice of the scribes who devour widows' houses. And in contrast, he draws attention to this one poor widow. And by the way, the word poor is an interesting word in the original language. The Greek translates toches. The P is silent, like we would say pneumonia or numisma or, or um, like pneuma, the spirit, toches. The word means pauper. The idea means destitute, deep 
poverty, her poor dress, her plain appearance showed her desperate plight. And the two coins are translated mites. Greek lepto. Even in physics, we have a word lepton. It means minuscule, tiny. The word represented the lowest fraction or denomination in circulation. And remember, Mark is writing to a Roman audience. And when they're thinking about coin, the lowest, the smallest copper coin in a Roman's pocket would have been a quadrant. And it would have taken about 10 of these mites to make one of those quadrants. So it's it's the it's a word that describes something that is so has so little value as to be almost valueless. The text doesn't want the reader to be impressed with the size of the coin or the art on the coin or the story behind the coin. But the key concept lies in the sacrifice that's been made by the giver. The others gave out of their abundance. She gives everything that she has. And so look at verse 43. The servant defines giving. He says he calls his disciples to himself and he says to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all of those who have given to the treasury. Jesus calls his disciples to himself. And he decides to teach on the subject of giving. And Jesus measures real giving, not in terms of how much a person has given, but rather how much they have left. Look at what he says. For they all put in out of the out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had her whole livelihood. In terms of pure buying power. Those two mites. Those two small coins hardly amounted to anything. Do you realize that in the ancient world, with those two mites, you could buy a roasted sparrow on a stick? For any of you who have ever gone to a country fair and you purchase a turkey leg and you walk around with the turkey leg, you get an idea. In those days, they didn't walk around with turkey legs. They would roast sparrows and they would put them on a stick. As a matter of fact, one of those tiny copper coins could be used by a person to enter a public Roman bath. For the person who has next to nothing, the text points out, That it's not the amount of the gift that's important to Jesus, but rather the motive of the heart. The person who has so very little can receive great encouragement from the fact that God never, ever cares about the amount that you give. That's never what's at issue as far as God is concerned. God is always concerned about the motive of your heart. And the ministry of your heart. The widow's giving expressed her conviction that everything belonged to God. And Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary, said small things are small things. But faithfulness with a small thing. Now that's a big thing. Some might look at the widow's example of giving and and complain. Well, look, time out. Why didn't she provide for her future? But this woman had elected to live by faith. She would trust the Lord for her future. She probably may have heard Jesus even say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these 
things, food and clothing will be provided. Your attitude about money and giving is linked to the issues of your heart. Will we trust the Lord? Because trust is an expression of faith that God will in fact provide. And it may not be in the way that we expect. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter four, verse 11, I am not saying this because I'm in need, because I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it means to be in need. I know what it means to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. In California, back in the 30s, they would say flush or full. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So does the Bible condemn saving money? Of course not. The Bible doesn't condemn saving money. The Bible condemns saving money for the express purpose of trusting it rather than God. The Bible doesn't condemn the possession of money. But rather the unhealthy preoccupation with money. As a matter of fact, there's some do's and don'ts that the Bible gives us. Basically, the Bible says, don't love it in Luke 16, 13. Don't think it'll last in Jeremiah 17, 11. Don't think it can save you, Psalm 37, 16. Don't serve it, Matthew 16, 24. Don't envy others who have it, Exodus 20, 17. Don't hoard it, James 5, 3. Don't be foolish with it, Proverbs 17, 16. Don't think that it can compensate you in turn. Turmoil, Proverbs 15, 16. Don't rely on it, Psalm 62, 10. Don't think it can buy God's blessings, Acts 8, 9. Don't use it for fraud, Micah 2, 2. Don't oppress people to get it, Proverbs 22, 16. Don't, don't, don't ever steal it, Titus 2, 9. Don't give special honor to those who have it, James 2.2. Don't use it dishonestly, Proverbs 13.11. Don't use it for evil, Ezekiel 8.12. Don't extort it, Ezekiel 22.29. Don't be greedy for it, Luke 12.15. Don't worry about it, Matthew 6.34. So what are the do's? Well, do. Love the Lord, Deuteronomy 6.5. Do only the things... Of God, note that they are the things that will last, Matthew nineteen twenty one. Remember that only God can save you, Psalm 27, 1. Serve the Lord, 1 Peter 5, 2. Be content with what you have, Luke three thirteen. Remember that it's God who provides, Job one twenty. Use it wisely, Proverbs 31, 10. Find your peace in God, Romans 15, 13. Rely on the Lord, Proverbs 18, 10. Find your blessing by living for God, 2 Corinthians 6, 10. Repay your debts with it, Psalm 37, 21. Work, work to get it, 2 Thessalonians 3, 9. Handle it justly, Leviticus 25, 14. Give to those who are in need, it says in Matthew 5, 41. Be trustworthy with the stewardship, Proverbs 11, 1. Honor God with it, Proverbs 3, 9. Earn it, Proverbs 13, 4. Give it intentionally, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Know, know that it's God who's going to take care of you. James 4.2 says, you lust and you don't have. 
Another translation says, you want something, but you can't get it. You kill, you covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel, you fight, you don't have because you don't ask God. When you do ask, you're not receiving it because you're asking with the wrong motives so that you can spend it on yourself. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, it says people who want to get rich fall into every kind of temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. They pierced themselves through with many griefs. No wonder the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you understand that in the context of Hebrews 13, 5, many of you have quoted that scripture. I will never leave you or forsake you. You remember, this is exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 14. I will never leave you or forsake you. But it's in the context of keep your lives free from the love of money. Why? Because you have a God who's taking care of you. Why would the writer of Hebrews say such a thing? Because the false promises made by money. Let me just help you with something. It's the promise of security apart from Jesus and power apart from Jesus and privilege apart from Jesus and social standing apart from Jesus and success apart from Jesus and love and attention apart from Jesus and peace of mind apart from Jesus and freedom from consequences apart from Jesus and happiness apart from Jesus. That's the terror. That's the problem. That's the difficulty. And this is why the psalmist wrote delight yourself in the Lord. He's the one who will give you the desires of your heart. So why give? You know, there was a greedy man who once prayed, God, you can have anything you want if you can pry it from my hands. That's not a good prayer. That's a selfish prayer. Why give? The Bible's answer might surprise you. You see, the Bible's answer is when when you give, you release your grip on money and you give it away. We we break free from its grip on us. Giving is the first step in combating greed. And if you've ever wanted relief from the pain and the heartache of materialism. And if you've ever wanted freedom. Then guess what? Part of the answer is generosity. No wonder the Bible says that we should be on guard against all kinds of greed and that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, giving brings freedom, but giving also brings more than freedom. If that were all that it gives, it would be enough. But the Bible makes it clear that giving also becomes an expression of worshipful obligation. Do you realize that giving acknowledges that your substance, your means, your wealth really do belong to God? And in the context, we're left with a with an amazing question. One of the most 
ask things that people ask me is, well, how much should I give? Should I give 10%? Should I give 9%? Should I give 8%? Should I give 7%? Before he died, Rick Ferguson, who was the pastor of Riverside Baptist Church, came on my program one week before he died. He was asked the question, well, pastor, should I tithe off the gross or should I tithe off the net? And Ferguson's answer was classic. He said, it all depends if you want to be blessed off the gross or blessed off the net. The reality is that the New Testament doesn't require anyone to tithe. You see, there's there's something far more expected for the New Testament Christian. It isn't an amount of. Of money that Jesus seems to be convinced is important. In the context, it seems what we're left with is far more important. How much do I feel comfortable keeping for myself? No wonder, again, the writer of Hebrews in 13, 16 says, please don't forget to do good. Please. Don't forget to share with others. Because these are the kinds of sacrifices that God is happy with. The Bible in the New Testament says the New Testament believer gives. Not because they have to, but because they want to. The Bible says that you're to give freely, purposefully, generously. When I was a brand new Christian, Pastor Chuck, we were in this tent and the most amazing thing took place. He passed a plate around. He said, give what you can. And then he said, take what you need. I've never seen it done ever again. You see, giving brings freedom and giving is an expression of worship. But giving also helps us to trust God because giving helps us to follow Jesus because Jesus will make this statement. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you, he says in Luke 29. And I know what some of you are thinking. I can't do that. Well, that's between you and the Lord. Because you see, giving brings freedom and giving is an expression of worship and giving is a privilege and giving comes from a heart of love. It was the missionary Amy Carmichael who wrote, you can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. And Jesus will do exactly that. He will come to the end of his life and he will come to the end of his ministry and he will not keep anything back. God gave generously to us out of his love and generously out of his love for others. The next question I'm asking you probably might surprise you. Because... The question that I'm asking isn't so much do you have a problem with giving. But I'm going to ask you a different question. Do you need help? Is there something 
that you need. You see, ask the Lord to help you to depend on him instead of money and stay focused on what matters most. And remember that God is always faithful and ask for wisdom in financial matters and handle money honestly and responsibly and put your money to work for God's purposes and be ready to give freely and practice being content with what you have and then do what needs to be done. Praise the Lord. For his blessings. There was a great evangelist and theologian who summed it up in a single sentence. John Wesley, during the time of the Great Awakening, said concerning money in a single sentence, get all you can, save all you can, and then give all you can. And it wasn't just a sermon for him. It was the way he genuinely lived his life. And so, the passage is way more confrontational than any of us could imagine. By the way, chapter 13, it's about the end of the world. But that's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to put our affection where our affection really needs to lie with you. Lord, we pray that we would not succumb to the false thought that money is what lasts when in fact it is your grace, it is your mercy, it is your forgiveness, it's redemption that lasts. Lord, help us to remember that money has never saved a single soul. And that, Lord, you're in charge of salvation. And you're in charge of sanctification. And, Lord, for some of us, perhaps we must repent. Knowing that we can't serve two masters. Either we will love the one and cling to the other. Or we'll hate the one. And despise the other. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't hoard it or be foolish with it, but that we would remember that you provide and that, Lord, you would give us wisdom on what to do with it. Lord, we know that you've called us to be givers. But, Lord, we know that there are times in life when we are, in fact, takers. So, Heavenly Father, for those who need forgiveness, Lord, I pray that we could take it. For those who need restoration and peace, comfort, that we could appropriate it in this time of need. Lord, we commit this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.